Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Welcome to this week's episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. I'm really excited today. I've got a gentleman on. Uh, his name is Mike Fell with Mike Fell Safaris. And I've been wanting to catch up with Mike for quite a while now. Uh, if you look him up on Facebook, you'll see just absolutely amazing photography and hunting adventures. And Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Jason. How are you doing? Very good, very good. I appreciate you uh, coming on this morning. I guess you've kind of been moving around uh you originally from South Africa, lived in Michigan for a number of years, but now you've moved down to Texas. So what brought you down to Texas? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, it's all uh, entwined with the safari world. You know, I, I started as a professional hunter in 1997, um, and I apprenticed under Danny McCullum Safaris, and we, uh, we had a concession there that was 9 million acres, and uh, I was hunting that. And then in the off-season, I would work in Chad and Central African Republic back in those days for Elaine LaFolle while on safari with a gentleman from, from Michigan. We, we actually got, to, got attacked by some rebels, and it was quite a hairy situation. It was a 28-day safari. We managed to get through. It was the, uh, uh, a group called the Taboo that were trying to get independence from the president, Idris Deby. They started a, a, a coup, and we were caught up right in the middle of it while we were hunting in the Sahara Desert. Anyway, after getting through all of this, this gentleman said to me, hey, Mike, you need to come to the States. You know, I think... Uh, this world you're living here is, is uh, got some dark shadows over it, and you know maybe the states would enjoy having you over there. So he ended up uh, bringing me to and putting me through university in Michigan. He had founded a, a private university over there, and, and uh, highly encouraged me to come over. And it was such a good opportunity for me. So that was my roots to go to Michigan. And I, after I finished university, um, I did a, a degree in information technology. I continued doing in the safari world. It's hard to get it out of your blood, but I always kept the base in the States, and Michigan was the place. Recently, I, I uh, got engaged to a lady who's a anesthesiologist, and she uh, got a job down in Austin. And I've always wanted to live in Texas, um, just it's a very avid outdoor um, sportsman safari um, bunch of people down here. So when she got the job, I decided it would be better for my business too, and that's hence why we moved down to Austin in January and really, really enjoying it so far. Oh, I bet. Leaving Michigan in January and coming to Austin in January is like night and day. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I, I was in the snow there. I was like a fish out of water, to say the least. But uh, no, Texas is a lot more like home. Really enjoying the people, enjoying the, the, the countryside. And it's, it's been very good for the, my safari bookings and business too. It's a very unique state. I've been here about 12 years now and all sorts of hunters around here. So it's it'll definitely be beneficial. One thing I wanted to ask about is you're very heavy into photography. And, and we'll touch on hunting in a little bit, but wanted to ask you about your photography because if people have an appreciation for animals just in general mike's work is amazing and mike tell people how you get some of these if you're willing to some of these neat photos of elephants you've got some of the most incredible elephant photos so traditionally i would go really close to elephants and oftentimes this is in national parks and what have you where you don't even have a rifle with you now i get very close and eventually the elephant would detect me and and uh and either be very curious to what I was or charge me. And that's how I got those photos originally. I had a very close shave with, a, with an elephant in Amboseli that nearly got me and sort of just scraped by. It got a great picture, but it was a very close 
um, close incidents are getting killed. So I decided I better change it up. And I've always, I'm into technology and stuff. So I, I researched and figured out the best way to get these shots without putting myself or the animal in danger was to use a remote-controlled uh, Beale camera. It's a remote-controlled car that I drive up into the elephants and they then charge it and rack just as if it was a human, except there's not the danger to myself or to anyone else. So uh, that's how I've been doing it recently. I use a lot of uh, the latest technology. I use a lot of motion detectors per sensors that are attached to my Nikon um, cameras. And then I use a lot of remote-controlled vehicles and stuff like this to, to get the pictures. It gives a very unique style to the photographs. You know, I always use wide-angle lenses. I'm always right in the, in the animal's breath and from down below. So it, uh, it personifies the size of these animals and gives them a very unique uh, perspective. That it does. And I brought that up because I happened to be scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I think you had just posted a video or it just got brought back up again on you running that beetle cam into a Pride of Lions. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting. There's a lot of things you learn um, when you spend hours and hours with these animals. It gives you a lot of insight. But there's one thing for sure. You always want to face an animal. With a small little beetle cam, you can go into a pride of 10 or 12 lions and take them on and uh, actually move them backwards, frontal. As soon as you turn around, uh, they will jump on you and it's the end of the game for you. So one thing for sure, you always want to keep your, your eye on the animal. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't want to be their, their snack or anything of that nature. So it's the, <laughs> the pictures, the your elephant pictures, uh, well, really, it's it's all your pictures. But you set out to do something with elephants and photographing elephants in a certain area. Tell the listeners about that. Yeah, so a lot of my photographs are taken in northern Tanzania and, and southern Kenya. And so it's a very dry area that's, that's getting, has changed a lot after, after the last, over the last 10 years. And um, there's an influx of people um, in the area and the, the natural wildlife habit is getting smaller and smaller. And then you've got this large pocket of elephants stuck in it and every year i just their landscape dwindling and so i wanted to photograph them to kind of document you know what's going on and i also um am trying to photograph all the big hundred one big hundred pounders that are left there there's 18 of them that i know about i've photographed a few of them so far but my my plan is to photograph all the the 100 pounders left in that east african pocket and so that you know the, the photographs of these animals will be eternal sure and um, i can't imagine there's that many hundred pounders left in in all of africa so to have a pocket of them is pretty amazing no absolutely no absolutely there's a few of them left in the kruger national park that everyone knows about and then you know amboseli's got quite a few and then sabo's got the, the largest number of hundred pounders and then there's a couple in Masabit too. But uh, no, there's definitely not many of them left. You know, so I think I definitely tr- want to try and save them forever by you know photographing them properly and with this unique perspective. Well, you, as again, people can go out to Mike's uh, Mike Fell Safaris uh, on Facebook, and he's got hundreds of his photographs out there, and they're amazing. And it can lead you to other spots if you see a photograph that you want to buy or anything of that nature. He does have a number of them that are available to be purchased. And I'll have links to that in the show notes. But again, the, the pictures, whether it be the gorillas, they're, they're just things that are so iconic to Americans and to the world when they think of Africa, that, that your photographs are just amazing. Um. My photography, too, the other thing I, I'm trying to do is I'm trying to appeal to the masses because most people are not that in tune with Africa and the story of Africa. And I think that a lot of hunters are doing the right thing, but they're not broadcasting this tactfully. They're you know, showing pictures of dead animals and, and of trophy animals and stuff like this. And I think that by uh, 
by photographing these animals and appealing to so many people that as a hunter, I can appeal to them in a much more tactful way and hopefully educate them about the importance of wildlife and the, the, the more specifically the, the importance of setting value on wildlife through hunting. You know, when I started out um, hunting at the age of 17, we took over an area that didn't have much wildlife in it. Slowly through hunting the area and by uh, creating value on the wildlife and by bringing in income for anti-poaching teams and for the communities in the area, we'd make money and give it to, their, to them for schools and water pipelines, medical facilities. Bringing in all this income, over time, this area went from having very little wildlife to flourishing and becoming very rich. As a young man, I realized the importance of, of creating this value and that if this, is, this is a model that really works for conservation. Ever since that, you know, that's what I've tried to follow in my career is going to these places and creating this value on wildlife that then protects the, you know, creating value by killing or harvesting one animal then creates value for the many animals to survive. I think that's the most important thing. The anti-hunters just don't seem to get this concept. You know, Africa is a very harsh country. There's a lot of miles to feed. And unless the animals pay for themselves, they'll be lost forever. You know, 80% of the wildlife is outside of national parks. In places like this, there's no, there's, you know, there's lots of this, the countryside is inhabited by tsetse flies, and it's it's very remote, it's very expensive to get to. These kind of areas don't appeal to photographic safaris, and so there's there's absolutely no other form of income besides hunting. You can't farm the there's not enough rainfall. You know, often oftentimes the the countryside is is uh, you know very rocky, and it it doesn't suit farming. It doesn't suit anything else besides hunting. And in this in these kind of places, it's just, it's very important to create this value. Sure, and one thing I've noticed, and I. Almost most folks I talk to have said the same thing is, well, the anti-hunters are very vocal about calling out the things that they don't like. Unlike hunters, you don't see them coming up in mass with money to to do anything different, uh, to put yeah. their money where where a hunter does. And the reality of hunting is that if you're out there looking for and some people don't like the use of the word trophy, but if you're looking for a trophy, it's generally an older, pastest prime male. So by removing that particular individual from the herd, you're not really hurting the population. You're giving those younger males times to survive, spread their genetics, and keep going. And that's where I think there's a real major disconnect out there. Absolutely. You know, that if we, you know, I'm very in tune with lion hunting and wild lion hunting. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, pro on this uh, the, you know, the canned lion hunting that happens in South Africa so number one I want to clarify that I, I don't support that I, I support wild lion hunting and I've been around it in many West African Central African and East African countries what I've come to realize is how fragile those ecosystems are and it doesn't take two or three years to completely decimate them if they're not managed correctly but at the same time if, if you have a non-corrupt structured safari operation as a hunting operation in these areas, it's the best possible way to protect them, keep the poachers out, um, win, winning the hearts and minds of the local communities by them benefiting from the wildlife and making money from the wildlife that then goes towards education of their kids, gets them water and increases their uh, their lifestyle. And the, the, the hunting then becomes the portal for uh, developing these these very these very um, primitive villages in the middle of, the, of nowhere. And it's a, it's a model, a business model, a conservation model that works. And so going back to the hunting of lions, if, if those things don't have a value to these people, they are just looked at as, as the enemy. I mean, 
no local community wants to tolerate lions when they eat their cattle and goats and terrorize their children. So if the, if the lions are not bringing in money for these people, they, they eradicate them with, uh, you know, nowadays they have pesticides that very effectively kills lions in no time at all. So when a, when a pride of lions kills a cow, they'll just put some poison in the, and kill the whole pride. Within a few months, there will be absolutely no lions left. And this is what people who care about lions don't seem to understand. I can, I see why they emotionally they have a hard time understanding why someone's prepared to pay so much money to go over and harvest a, a lion. And they have a hard time with wondering why somebody would want to do that and what kind of ego somebody thinks they're entitled to to be able to kill a lion. And I understand those arguments. But at the end of the day, it's in the interest of the species to allow it to be hunted because without that, the, the lion will be eradicated. There's so much pressure on them. There's less land available to them. The, the, the prey species of the lion has decreased. Lions don't coexist well with humans. There's a lot of, they've, they've been prone to a lot of disease, phenyl AIDS, distemper. There's a lot of pressures on lions. So they absolutely need to be very well, the hunting of it needs to be controlled, but they also need to be creating this this value that en- enables the rest of the population to be safeguarded. Now in in, in uh, Maasai land, for example, when U.S. Fish and Wildlife stopped the hunting of lions and the line of lions to be imported into the state, suddenly all these lions that are around these p- pastoral Maasai herdsmen are uh, being eradicated and not with spears anymore, it's using poisons. In, in just two years, I've seen the lion population completely decrease since they're not being hunted anymore. And, you know, when there was hunting, it was very strictly controlled. The lion had to be six years or older and there was strict fines and penalties for deviating from that rule and uh, it's been proven that at that age the, the lion is no longer breeding he's been removed from the pride he no longer has kids so i mean no longer has cubs so there's no infanticide being you know when another male comes in and kills the cubs moreover the life of a lion is is pretty grim because lions kill lions when a male lion reaches maturity and he he breeds a pride when other younger coalition groups move in they will kill him to take over that pride let me tell you being killed by another group of male lions is not a not a very nice thing either so even though hunting might be harsh but you know lions killing lions is a pretty harsh phenomenon too and so this is what i found over the years that it's definitely a system that i'm for and i believe in that if you care about lions you should allow the hunting of them yeah i think the anti-hunters become they're a preservationist they're not a conservationist and as such i think a lot of them suffer under the or are under the false illusion of the Africa created by Walt Disney and that they just think that everybody's there to exist, that there's unlimited amounts of land and they've never been there. They don't understand what the real dynamics are that are going on. And this creates just such a, a harsh thing that, for example, as you just pointed out, when the fish and wildlife steps in the U S fish and wildlife, the average gun ownership in Africa is not like gun ownership here in the States. Uh, you see very few of the locals owning guns. So as you said, Instead, they resort to poisons, and they kill everything. Planes game, lions, anything that touches what's poisoned dies, and it's a shame. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a real real shame to see it. Now, I want to switch gears for a second because many Americans will go to Africa in, in the hopes of hunting one or more of the big five. One of them is the Cape buffalo, which is one of the animals I hope to hunt one day. But I read a story believe i can't remember where i read it where you talked about a very close issue you had with a cape buffalo one time when you were guiding a hunt yes it was actually last year um in august in tanzania we were we were were looking for a a herd of of buffaloes that we'd spooked earlier in the day we we knew where they were bedding 
And so he wanted to leave them until it cooled down and they started to feed again. And that way we would we'd be able to uh, have a better um, better chance of looking them over. And so uh, we went into the area where the, the, the herd of buffalo were and we found them. As soon as I saw them, I was in front. We lay down flat on the ground and looked over the, over the, the herd and uh, didn't see anything good. And they were sort of feeding towards us very peacefully. It hadn't sensed us. The wind was good in our faces. And slowly they started ambering off to the side. I was actually just about to get up and move. And suddenly from a thick bush on our side, I just heard, heard this uh, bellowing. And it was a, a buffalo in full charge coming at us. And uh, we'd actually been probably lying there for, for a couple of minutes, you know, and hadn't, hadn't noticed him at all because the bush was so thick. He locked in on my, uh, on my client and just came full blast at him. And he had a 375 bolt action. He uh, shot it in the chest and it didn't, uh, didn't affect the buffalo whatsoever. It just uh, came, um, came, you know, equal speed straight at him. And I couldn't shoot now because there was a bunch of clients behind me and, and uh, trackers too. So I had to sort of really wait until the very last moment when my shot was clear. And I just put the barrels of my 577 against the buffalo, pulled both triggers, and he uh, literally fell in between <laughs> my pork line to myself. It was a very, very hairy and close situation. So was uh, your muzzle right up against the buffalo's head? Exactly, exactly. But fortunately, it wasn't going for me, actually. It was going for my uh, my client. <laughs> wow, so... But uh, no, I've, I've often been in dangerous situations like that, but... Most times I won't take a client into a very dangerous situation. It'll be me that's in danger. You know, I've never had such a close shave to having a, a client uh, actually getting hit. The, the, the hunt wasn't provoked or anything. That was just a buffalo deciding to take us on. You know, he was uh, particularly contactless that day and decided to have a go at us. Well, and that's what they're known for. And when I read that, uh, a fellow friend, a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Matt Bogoslowski, told me last, I think it was last year or the year before, recently on the podcast that he took a buffalo at four yards uh, that was charging. Yeah. That would bring me to always be carrying an extra set of clothes because I would need to change my pants after a situation <laughs> like that. No, that's right. Those buffalo in Maasai land are particularly uh, dangerous because the, the vegetation is very thick. So uh, a buffalo definitely has an advantage when his surroundings are thick. You know, that he, then he can hide and he can take advantage of it. And also the Maasai and the buffalo are always uh, in competition for the water. And so the buffalo start to have an eternal hate for humans um, oh. because of the pressure of water. And that's what really makes them, you know, very, very dangerous, especially when it's dry. That that's always seems to be when somebody gets hurt. And they learn. buffalo are not getting the water. Oh, very much so, yeah. And from what I understand, they, that's don't, something they don't forget either. Oh, that's right. That's right. And it's also been proven that in times of drought, when there's not much grass in the ground, they'll start eating the leaves of the acacia nilotica. And it's been proven that it makes them a lot more uh, fierce. In fact, the Maasai, before they hunt lions with a spear, they'll uh, brew a, a tea made from the acacia nilotica. And it's supposed to make them more fierce. And it's said that it makes the buffalo more fierce too, just like it does the, the Maasai. Have you ever um, tried that? So I don't know if that's it. I haven't. <laughs> no, I'm fierce enough. I think I'm fierce enough. <laughs> try to, try no, to bring but, some uh, of that back from your season this year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We don't really need that. Huh? Yeah, no, so it's, uh, it's definitely a place in Maasai land whenever I'm hunting it, I always, always get out of the car with a loaded gun and have a round chambered because you never know what's going to happen there. It's very unpredictable. As I said, the bush is very thick. When something happens, it happens very fast. I was actually hunting in that same area with Jim Shockey uh, two years ago. We had, we had harvested an RX gazelle and I, and I uh, caped it out. Because it was a very hot day, I decided to take the cape back to uh, camp so that it wouldn't spoil. And we were off-road and I was driving. We got to a dry riverbed. As I drove into the dry riverbed with the Land Cruiser, the, the trackers started screaming, Mbogo, Mbogo, Mbogo. By the urgency of their voice, you could hear that there was a buffalo charging the vehicle. And so I looked 
up the river, looked down the river, I didn't see anything. And then I looked in front of me, above the bank, because now we were, you know, we had descended into the, the riverbed. There was a buffalo coming full blast. And the problem was that the, the top of the bank and the uh, and the bonnet were the, the, the front of the car was at the same level. So the buffalo was going to come straight into my windscreen. So I quickly put the vehicle in reverse so that the buffalo would now have to come and descend down the bank to hit the vehicle, which he did very well. <laughs> and uh, he hit it with so much velocity, velocity actually knocked himself off for about three seconds. And then he got up and started smashing the car from the front, you know, and he got his head stuck underneath the front of the Land Cruiser and was shaking it all over the place. It's incredible how much power they have. And so uh, knowing that this buffalo is definitely going to kill somebody will cause a lot of damage to uh, to the vehicle, we uh, we stopped the situation, you know, and and uh, and, and shot him. But it was uh, amazing to see how powerful and aggressive those animals can be. And on inspection, that buffalo didn't have anything wrong with him. He was in good health. He was old, uh, but he hadn't been wounded. And there was actually no reason whatsoever for him to have just charged the car like that. He's just so having a bad day. Can just, exactly. They can be very cantankerous and very aggressive. And that's what they're known for. Out of curiosity, um, what, is look, the, what is the type of rifle that you carry? I like... I like using a double rifle and the key to using the double rifle is to wait until the last moment where people go wrong with it. They shoot their rounds off too fast and they don't uh, drop the animal and then there's no time to reload. So the style when you shoot, when you hunt with a double rifle is you, when something charges you, you wait until the very last moment and then the benefit to it is you have two shots. So if you don't manage to stop it with the first round, you still have a second chance to bring him down. I've always used the double. I started my career with a 470 and used it for about 10 years. It worked very well until one day I had a very close shave with a hippopotamus charging me you know i shot the thing right between the eyes from about uh, four feet away and it actually didn't kill the hippo he came through and sort of brushed past me just missed me then died and i realized there wasn't enough shock so i moved up in caliber to a 577 and uh, that's just been fantastic for me it's got so much power in those really tight, sticky situations. Oh, that's um, a it's a seven hundred and fifty, yeah, seven hundred and fifty gram bullet. It's uh, definitely uh, earns some respect on both sides of the barrel. I look at it like a life insurance policy. It uh, gives me a lot more confidence in getting in close and going into dangerous situations. Oh yeah, that's it, the unfortunate thing is I don't think there's many places in the states here you can actually shoot that thing to practice with it. <laughs> it's expensive too. I think it's like. Thirty dollars a bullet or something. But it's, uh, at the range you're shooting, you know, you don't really need to practice at five yards. No, that's right. But you, the, the the key to even when you use a large caliber like that, you still have to uh, hit that thing with precision, and that's the that's what you got to remember. You know, I always like with a charging buffalo, you have to hit it in the brain. If you just shoot it in the chest, it'll often kill it, but it'll still do damage to you before it dies. So you definitely want to make a very precise shot in that close close situation. Um, but that, that being said, it's a big target, and when it's close, it's pretty it's pretty hard to miss. You know, um, as long as you have the nerve to wait for that last moment. And speaking of big targets, not on the dangerous game list, one of the animals that not many people will ever get the opportunity to hunt, but you've been on a number of them, is for Lord Derby Eland, and that is an amazing animal. I always. You know, it's a really fantastic hunt. I classified as one of my favorites, and the reason is you. Some people say you earn a pound of ivory by by walking a mile. I think it's the it's the, it's the same with elands. For every inch of horn you get, you're going to walk about a mile. So you really work hard and walk for those for those elands. They they uh they cover incredible distances every day, and it's 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 pretty normal to walk at least 12 to 30 kilometers after an eland in a single day. And it's in, in a very hot climate. And what you, what you do is in the early morning you pick up their tracks at a salt lick, 
and then you track them and you try to catch up with them. And if you take any break whatsoever, the eland sort of leaves you behind. They they kind of walk faster than you walk. So you really got to motor on those tracks to catch up with them. It's a very classical hunt with a lot of um, tracking technique to be able to uh, to excel and and be successful. And and for that reason, I really really enjoy it. You know, you seldomly ever just get lucky on an eland. You you really got to work hard for it. And that's what I love about it. And you know, I've been hunting them. I was in in Central African Republic for about. 18 years in an amazing place there where in the Chinko where you could hunt um, bongo which is a, a forest species of tragalifine spiral horned antelope and you could hunt the giant eland in the same area and the diversity in the, the place was just phenomenal this was an absolute paradise there was so much wildlife and so much game and uh, that eland was one of the big attractions so we did that for many years and then unfortunately the political situation central africa went down the tubes about three years ago. You had the Lord's Resistance Army move in, and you had a fight, a Muslim-Christian war between the Seleka and the anti-Balaka. And they both different rebel groups, and, and they took out the president, and there was no political stability whatsoever. The, the areas just really went down the tubes. Until recently, African Parks has taken over those areas and trying to bring them back to uh, back to life. But they've met a lot of resistance with all the different rebel groups. One thing I've learned over the years is that one of the worst things for wildlife is political instability. Because in those times, the locals revert to poaching to feed themselves and their, their rebel groups. It's very, very detrimental to the wildlife. And that's that was the case in, in Central Africa. You, all these different functions, you know, f- feeding themselves and the wildlife. And, and uh, it was not good whatsoever. What's a trophy Lord Elan Derby weigh? In Central Africa, I found they were a lot more heavy. Um, I'd say a, a big one is about about 800 kilograms. Yeah, big animal. Which makes sense um, for feeding. You know, if you're going to feed a family, a group of soldiers, anything... You pop one of those, it's not long before, A, you're hurting the population dramatically uh, with just indiscriminately shooting those things. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Recently, I've been doing all my safaris for giant eland in Cameroon, and there's a very healthy population in the north of Cameroon. It's a lot more stable and having very good success doing that. So for the last sort of three, four years, that's where I've been um, taking all my my, uh, Lord Derby eland clients and uh, having a great time. And when do you head over to Africa, Mike? I'm actually heading to Cameroon on Saturday. I'm going bongo hunting. Then the season in Tanzania starts on the 1st of July, and then I'll be in Tanzania. Um, And will you be over there through like September, October? October? Absolutely. I, I go all the way until December. Oh, okay. So um, you, yeah, you're definitely getting ready to take off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. I spend this part of the year in the States just doing my marketing and trying to get my bookings going, and then the rest of the year I'll be hunting. How is it for somebody, if they wanted to contact you to, to book a hunt in those areas, you said it's fairly politically stable, everything. The areas are going to be pretty accommodating and open to most Americans coming in, are they not? Uh, very much so, yeah. No, in Tanzania, I've got some fantastic concessions. And Tanzania is a very, very politically stable country, and, you know, they're very, oh, there's a uh, 125 designated hunting concessions and most of them are huge in, in size and uh, it's a system that's working very well for the country so, so hunting in Tanzania is a very very lucrative thing for the country and a very good thing for the wildlife and it's the system is working well um, so and again politically stable so a good good environment for uh, um, potential clients to go to and then I'm doing a lot in Cameroon too and Cameroon's a very stable country and you know the hunts work out very well so at the moment those are the two countries I'm focusing on oh fantastic that's a very
very neat thing. And Cameroon is still one of those areas you don't think about a lot because it's just, when you think of Africa, most Americans are going to go off to South Africa for their first trip. Yeah, sure. But South Africa uh, is starting to spread out. And I, I, I know I'm hearing more and more of the Tanzania, the Namibia, uh, just these, these countries that a decade ago probably were very off the beaten path are becoming very, very common now. Yeah, that's right. You know, Cameroon is, is actually a very wealthy country. They've got a lot of things going well. It's a portal. They've got a, you know, a huge port system in the capital of Douala. And so there's a lot of import and export and they have a lot of natural resources. So the country is actually is a lot more wealthy than most people expect. And they have a good infrastructure as a result. They lay a very good system down for, for nature conservation and for wildlife. And so they're very pro-hunting and they've got a, a good system going there. I'm always amazed in Cameroon how much wildlife there is in all these areas. So, you know, the wildlife's doing very, very well. And, and the, the system is definitely working. Now, you're getting ready to take off, but if somebody wanted to contact you to further discuss hunting in Africa, what is the best way to do that? Um, yeah, so I, I always carry a vegan um, satellite antenna with me, so I always have an internet. So the best is to shoot me an email, and my email address is Mike, M-I-K-E, and then Fell, F-E-L-L, and then Safaris, S-A-F-A-R-I-S, at uh, iCloud.com. Shoot me an email, and uh, I'll respond quickly, and I'm always available. Um, alternatively, give me a call, and I'll uh, call you back on the satellite phone. Just leave me a voicemail at 248-219-3983, and I'll get in touch. Well, that's awesome. And so if somebody just wanted to say, hey, Mike, I've never been to Africa before. I'd really love to do Plains Game Hunt. You'll set them up with that just as easy as the person that wants to do one of the big five or all of the big five. Absolutely. You know, I've been doing this for 22 years, so I have a lot of good connections and uh, I use a lot of different uh, outfitters, you know, so I, I can hook people up in South Africa or Namibia or Mozambique or anywhere they want to go. And uh, over the years, you know, I know which are the good operation operators and I, I, I've been to all of these concessions and other people personally. So uh, I try to put people in, you know, really good areas where I know that they're going to be well taken care of. person that wants the very stable head into South Africa, do Cape Town, do you know, a wine tour on uh, Western South Africa, anything of that nature, you can set that up as well as heading off into the deep bush for a month long safari. Exactly, exactly. And more and more now, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to book more more uh, safaris that I can actually do myself. And so I'll set people up with, with friends of mine that are in the business. And uh, I'll, I, I spend a lot more time doing my bookings now. Um, less time in the field, I guess, than before. You know, those, those days of, of hunting for 300 days a year doesn't work very well when you've got a fiance. So uh, no, <laughs> I spend I was... a lot more time in the office trying to, trying to fix these hunts up now. I was wondering if, uh, if does no, does she come over to Africa to st- spend time with you? Yeah, she does. She loves this. Yeah, she loves it. I, I do a lot of uh, photographic stuff for myself where I'll go on trips for myself to go and photograph specific animals and on all those photographic trips I always take her and she just loves it you know so fun it's, it, most people would think that I get enough time in the bush when I have vacation I'll go somewhere else but I actually end up going on safari for myself when I have any free time and trying to do some photography sure and your family is still in South Africa my whole family is still in South Africa I'm sort of the black sheep in the states now ah well you're, you're in a good area for hunting and you're in a good area to get people over there too so now, when coming up next year, when you're back stateside, coming back in December, do you hit the shows yeah. like the Dallas Safari Club show, the Safari Club International? Absolutely. You go yeah, to all absolutely. Those? I've been doing all those shows for, for a good 20 years now. And every year I go to them. So they always very, you know, it's a great way to network and meet people and, and take some booking. So I, I'm definitely I'm very pro doing those. People can also, if they're looking at 2018, 19, 20, you can start working with them to book out what they need to do to get set. 
Very much so. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I definitely like finding people sort of figuring out their budget and what they're looking for, and then I try to find the right uh, outfit for that to meet their, their uh, particular needs. That's what I'm good at, you know, having done it for so long. And speaking of that, that's actually a good point to bring up. We'll kind of end on this because I want to be respectful of your time. Well, there are some very expensive hunts in Africa, namely some of the big five or the big seven, however, however you want to turn that. There's also a lot of very economical hunts for somebody that can rival or beat what a single whitetail here in the States could cost you. Yeah, absolutely. When you, you know, Africa always sounds expensive, but the, the thing is you're actually hunting so many different species. So when you figure out how much a mule deer hunt costs or an elk hunt costs, animal for animal, Africa is often a lot cheaper actually. And as I said, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a different budget. You know, you can you can go very cheap or you can go very expensive and there's sort of a budget for everybody. There's a lot of different uh, safaris you can do. And, and I think, uh, you know, even for a beginning hunter, there's, there's definitely some affordable safaris to go into. Probably fairly safe to say that you can work with with three, four thousand up to three, four hundred thousand with without any problem. Absolutely, I would totally agree on that one. Yeah, you can. That's the range, one hundred percent. When I looked at what I would cost me to hunt an elk in New Mexico, Colorado, uh, you know, you know the, the typical what you think of when you think of elk hunting, that cost was going to be the same as what I could fly to Zimbabwe and I got a hunt where I took nine animals, plains game, no no dangerous game. This was all plains game, and my flight and the shipping of the trophy back for what it would have cost for one elk hunt. So I was shocked. And that's why I tell folks, if you haven't, if you've always thought, oh, it's going to cost six figures to go to Africa, it doesn't. Contact somebody like Mike, and I, I think you'll you'll be absolutely surprised at what the cost is to do a, a life-changing experience. Really going to Africa, the hunting is really, as far as I'm concerned, a secondary part. It's the experience. Yeah. It's the people. It's the food. It, it's all of that. It, it's a life-changing event. And once I went, all I think about is how am I going to get back? That's true. It's very addictive. I was going to warn your audience that, uh, you know, once you go to Africa, it gets in your blood and it's very hard to stop going. You know, I see these guys going for their first safari and it gets in their blood and they go back every single year, you know, and they, that's what their, their light at the end of the tunnel is. That's why they work so hard every year is to go back to Africa. It's pretty amazing yeah. how much that bug gets in you, you know. Very much so. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time. For the listeners, I'm going to have Mike's contact information in the show notes. I encourage you. It's guys like Mike that are the real conservationists. They're the ones that are the reason that there's animals in Africa. I'm sure we didn't even touch on anti-poaching work and all the other things that go into a hunting concession. It's not just guys walking out in the field with guns, popping a couple animals and leaving. There's so much behind the scenes work that all these safari operators doing that next year at Dallas Safari Club show, I'll, I'll catch up with you again, Mike. And we'll, if you got a chance, we'll do maybe a little bit of talk about the behind the scenes work that goes on, the anti-poaching work. Yeah, that's the impressive stuff. You know, that's, that's really where we can be proud of being hunters, you know, because we do so much good for uh, for the wildlife and for the anti-poaching and for the communities. You know, it's, it's something that we can all be very proud of. You know, we're not just savage killers that don't care about anything except ourselves. No. We, uh, we have a, a very good system set up that works and that, that is beneficial to wildlife and to conservation. And, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's conservation, which I've said before, is the wild utilization of resources we're out there we're putting boots on the ground money in the communities money in people's hands and it keeps people working and it puts a value on this animal which if it's gone guess what the animal's gone that's just as simple a fact as it is so i appreciate your time mike i hope you have a great time as you wrap everything up here in the states and head back overseas we look forward to talking to you again when you get back in uh geez i guess it's gonna be seven months or so hey thanks so much thanks for your time and and appreciate your support and make sure you're carrying an extra set of clothes with you on those next buffalo hunts because i 
you might need them at shooting them at that range. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> That's right. Hey, uh, th- thanks so much, and uh, and uh, appreciate your time. Oh, I know. I appreciate it here. The listeners appreciate it. And again, you have a great afternoon. Hey, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Spring, it's getting green. Fisher on the bed, and hear those turkeys gobble. It's ringing in my head. The winter rides bass boat. Here comes another year. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Oh, we. Command the outdoors Yeah, we Command the outdoors Come summertime, we're feeling fine Fishing on the lake Flipping jigs in Carolina rigs From early morning till real late Bonfires on the creek bank, kick back a couple beers. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. There's doves until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. The fever starts to creep. Fill our freezers full of ducks, lots of tender deer. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we. Yeah, we command the outdoors. So grab your guns, shells, boys. Put on your camouflage. Cause we command the outdoors around here. We command the outdoors.